Welcome back to another episode of Thoughts on Walks. This is episode number three. And uh, as we start out, I'm standing looking out uh, into a little brook. Um, it's called Tannery Brook. And it looks beautiful with the, um, the branches hanging over the brook, covered with snow. And it uh, looks like somebody threw a big pumpkin in there, getting rid of their Halloween pumpkin. And, uh, but it's a beautiful day. It's, well, honestly, it's not as beautiful as I, I can make it out to. It's, it's, we're in that in-between temperature where um, it's like 33 degrees maybe, uh, maybe 34. But, uh, and, it, and it dips down to below 32 for periods of time. And so uh, it's a little rainy right now, just a really light mist that it's falling on the snow and it's causing a little ice layer on the top and and uh, so the sidewalk can be a little slippery and uh, where there is snow it's coated with a little thin coat of ice. But as we start out episode three, some exciting news. Uh, actually, the uh, podcast was already accepted in, into iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I think it's called now. And uh, so it is available there. It's available in Stitcher and Google Play. Um, so really all the major podcast directories have accepted the podcast. And there are links to subscribe on the homepage at thoughtsonwalks.com. So somebody asked me yesterday if I planned on um, letting folks know about the podcast. And I really don't. It's really just by word of mouth. So if you're enjoying it and you subscribe, if you know somebody else who might get something out of this kind of a walk and talk format, uh, please send them a link so uh, they can enjoy an episode or two and decide for themselves if they want to subscribe. Uh, I didn't realize this until very recently that there's podcasts that I listen to and uh, I use the Apple Podcast app on my iPhone and uh, right in there you can there's, you just press the button and share this podcast or share this episode and, it, and you can text it or email it to somebody or share it on your social media which is cool so I've, uh, I've done that uh, a couple of times and a rating and a review and uh, iTunes would be great too if you're called to do that. And I have to tell you, I've got to thank you right off the bat. I, uh, I said I was starting this as a little exercise in accountability. And on the show yesterday, I said I was going to run and grab some walnut for a project that I was doing. And, uh, and then while I was there, I would... Um, sneak across the street to Elm Street Bakery and uh, grab a little something. And in all honesty, I kind of let life get in the way of uh, picking up that wood for the project. And it's interesting because it's a project that I'm looking forward to work on. But uh, I got home and I uh, went through the audio from yesterday's walk with uh, my dogs out on uh 
out at Knox. And uh, so I processed that audio and uploaded it and did some very brief show notes and uh, I put some links in there for things that I've talked about. And uh, those are all at thoughtsonwalks.com slash sorry, getting a little loud thoughtsonwalks.com slash 002 for yesterday. But before I came out on my walk today, I uh, thought about, well, when I get on here, I want to be as candid and uh, transparent as I can. And so I ran to the lumber place this morning and I picked out three pieces of three lengths of walnut. I got uh, one eight quarter and two four quarter pieces. And uh, with that, I'm going to make a footstool and uh, a cutting board, like a paddle shaped cutting board, I think, for one. It has a bit of a live edge on it. Uh, and it's always nice to have some walnut around for little projects. I love to work on my projects around the house and and Christmas is coming up and uh, I'll probably make some cutting boards for people or if we go over to somebody's house we'll take a little charcuterie platter a little meat and cheese tray uh, on on a cutting board and then just leave the cutting board with them as a little uh, holiday gift so we'd like to uh, if we're going to give a gift we want it to be something that somebody can use and I enjoy making that stuff so I'm going to be uh, using some of the scraps for that. Occasionally I'll just throw something together just in scraps, which I did uh, about two or three weeks ago. I just had a bunch of scraps together of uh, uh, hard rock maple and walnut, and I just glued them up uh, for cutting boards, and, and, and now they're all glued up, and they're just kind of blanks, and I, I haven't worked on them since. I just put them aside for when it's time. So I'll work on some of that uh, later on, maybe today or over the weekend. So uh, very excited about um, the show and, and it, uh, how it kept me accountable with that. And I, but I did sneak off to dinner last night at Elm Street, so I did not go today, uh, but uh, to the bakery. And uh, I took, my wife did dinner there last night when she got home. But so I got a little bit of a late start. I took my uh, took the dogs out for to romp around a little bit this morning, and then I ran to get the lumber, and then uh, had to go through a couple of emails with a old friend of mine that I used to work with. So I'm uh, out on my walk a little later than usual, and uh, it's uh, a little bit busy. It's getting close to lunchtime, so I'm trying to stay on the side streets. And I also set this recorder to um, to be voice activated, so I really haven't used that on these walks before. And uh, so I'm trying to, I'll just stop talking when there's cars that go by and hopefully you won't hear as many loud cars going by. So thanks for holding me accountable, I appreciate that. And uh, so, so far my experiment is working out just fine. I'm on a uh, 
a side street in my village. There are a lot of uh, older homes, and it's one of my, uh, it's kind of like the street <laughs> address uh, to have in the village, and uh, and for good reason, there's some beautiful homes. There tends to be a little bit too much traffic on it for my taste uh, because of that, but uh, uh, I kind of walk in strange patterns where uh, kinda, I'll go up and back and, you know, do a little grid pattern here, and, and uh, I try to vary it up. Even though, as I've mentioned before, every time I'm out on a walk, I see something different. And the walk never really gets old to me. But uh, as I've listened to just these two uh, two previous recordings, episode one and episode two, um, I realized that uh, I talk a lot about uh, history in the village, and I've mentioned that I'm a history buff. and But I never really gave that a lot of thought. I, I do... Um, I think I'm not a live in the past type of guy, but uh, history for me is uh, gives me a perspective to view the present and the future. So I th- I think it's a healthy perspective. Uh, you know, this, there's so many different sayings when it comes to that that those who don't study history are are doomed to repeat it and. Uh, uh, and as, as far as lessons learned as you go through life, a lot of people learn the same lesson over and over and over again. I know I've been guilty of that. But uh, I really do enjoy history. But listening through to the audio on these two episodes kind of drives it home how much uh, history is a part of how I view the now. And uh, I tend to put a lot of things uh, in historical context to understand what's going on in my life right now. And uh, on episode one, I, uh, my typical walk through the cemetery and around that way is just packed with uh, uh, natural views of that uh, Casanova Creek. And uh, just that, that whole area is just so beautiful. And I'm passing right now by the house of a, uh, a painter who lived here in uh, late 1800s, maybe even early early 1900s. He left and then he came back. His uh, his name is uh, Alexis Jean Fournier, and uh, I'm passing by where he lived right now, and uh, he said that uh, he was. Uh, I'm not a big art critic type of person, but. Uh, uh, I think his he was like from the Barbizon school of painters, um, so a lot of uh, n- natural uh, landscapes and so forth. And so he painted a lot in uh, in and around the village here. He's not originally from from here, but he he moved here. And uh, one of his favorite valleys was uh, that Casanova Creek Valley that I mentioned how beautiful it was looking down into that. I'm gonna stop and take a sip of coffee. Ah, it's very good. <laughs> it's always good, me and my coffee. But uh, uh, Alex Fournier um, painted a lot of uh, uh, different sites around uh, the village where I live and it's uh, Interesting to see once in a while when one of them comes up for sale. Someday I would like to get one. 
And uh, so the thing that brought him to this area is uh, working with some other artists. And so I think I'll start out, if you'll indulge me, with a, with a little bit of a story of a guy uh, who was born in Illinois in 1856. And his dad was a country doctor and a farmer. And uh, he was uh, just kind of expected to follow in his dad's footsteps as a, uh, as a doctor. And uh, he spent a lot of time with his dad and, and uh, hunting and working the farm. And uh, I guess he had a pretty good grasp of anatomy books. And, and everybody just thought he would follow like many boys did back then, father, father, uh, following their father's footsteps. Uh, his family was also quite religious. And uh, as luck would have it, this young man was not interested too much in um, formalized religion or in being a doctor. But he did have a kind of a knack for uh, salesmanship and being an entrepreneur. And when he was 12, he saw a little ad in a magazine and rode off to uh, order some chemicals to make uh, this glue that supposedly you'd be able to mix up this glue and sell it to your neighbors and you'd be their glue supplier. <laughs> and uh, I guess he came close to blowing up his mother's kitchen with those chemicals. But uh, when he was 16, I met up with uh, a man named Justice Weller, who was the nephew of, uh, it was his father's nephew, so kind of a cousin. And, uh, but uh, Justice Weller was a little older than this boy. And uh, Justice Weller was a maker of soap. And it just so happened that he visited this family on a day when, in the spring when they were making soap. So making soap was quite an ordeal back in the late 1800s where uh, families would save their ashes from the fire from the wintertime and use the lye from the ashes and use the fat from the animals from the meals that they had prepared through the winter and using the fat and the lye from the ashes they would make their soap for the year and as I read it was a very messy situation but it was one of those things that uh, just had to be done well uh, Cousin Justice had a uh, little soap factory that he started and uh, would sell soap with a, uh, a partner of his, whose last name was Larkin, 
So the Larkin Weller soap uh, company was born out of this need to, for people to have soap, but who uh, didn't have the time or inclination to make it. And so being at the tail end of the Industrial Revolution, they were uh, able to bring one more convenience to the modern housewife and keeper of the home. One less task that she didn't have to lead her family through the drudgery of making the year's supply of soap. So this boy, whose name was Albert Hubbard, at the age of 16, went off with, uh, to sell soap door to door in the suburbs of Chicago and throughout rural um, Illinois. And he made quite a name for himself. And he was a handsome young guy and apparently he um, had a sweetheart in every little village and uh, he said that when he came to town the, the housewife smiled the teenage girls cooed and he sold the goods and uh, he became a very successful salesman and entrepreneur at a very early age and although Justice Weller was part of the family uh, and was in business with this Mr. Larkin there was some uh, trouble on the home front there and the business split and uh, through this time Albert Hubbard's sister married John Larkin so he was related to both sides of the business and he was offered a position and accepted it with John Larkin who was moving his side of the company that made soap from uh, Illinois to Buffalo, New York and Albert Hubbard joined him and rose to become the number two in the Larkin Soap Company and uh, was uh, promoted through the ranks because even though he was so young, he just had a knack for entrepreneurism and salesmanship and marketing and copywriting. And he is responsible for much of what we still see today of uh, uh, try it before you buy it, uh, buy one, get one free, and uh, direct sales to the home. He's, uh, he started all of that. And that was, you know, back in the 1880s. So we had this young Albert Hubbard who uh, made quite the name for himself. And uh, he lived uh, initially in downtown Buffalo, but I mentioned that um, the town uh, where the village where I live was uh, a horse town. And Albert Hubbard being a lover of nature and the outdoors, uh, wanted a place for his family to be raised and uh, he wanted to be able to ride his horses. And so he moved his family to my village and commuted back and forth to Buffalo on the railroad, which I think I may have mentioned had like 16 runs a day between the village and Buffalo. So that sounds like a pretty ideal life for a young, wealthy, 
entrepreneur and his new family. And uh, he had some sons and daughters and so forth. But like many men who get successful in one area of life, they feel like their lives are lacking in another. And he went through a bit of a, uh, I guess you'd call it a midlife crisis. He tired of uh, being part of the uh, a part of industry uh, and salesmanship, and he yearned for simplicity, which I certainly identify with. And uh, he decided that what his life was really, uh, or what he was really meant to do in life, was to be a writer. And So he tried his hand. I'm going to take another sip of coffee here before I keep going. He tried his hand at writing, and he studied a lot of the classics, and um, he thought that that was what he was meant to do. So he worked out a deal with John Larkin. And now, mind you, this is the Larkin Company at the time was a mail-order company on the scale of, I believe it was number three in the United States behind Sears and I think it was Montgomery Wards. And then there was the Larkin Company and they were that successful. And so not only was Albert Hubbard number two in the hierarchy, he was also a major shareholder in the company. And, uh, but he worked out a deal at the tender age of, I think it was 37, to uh, sell his shares back to John Larkin, who he was related to as well, his brother-in-law, and uh, retire from that and uh, try his hand at writing from his home here in my little village. And so here he is, a young man, uh, able to live off of his retirement quite uh, quite handsomely and is going to try his hand at writing. And I identify that uh, with that because uh, I retired at 45 from my first career, which was... I started working when I was 12, and I uh, and then I essentially did... I guess what some people would look at as odd jobs uh, until I retired. And uh, odd being there, not that they weren't with a purpose, but uh, they were different jobs than most people would, than a lot of people would do. And um, and I enjoyed it. And uh, I'm certainly not wealthy, but I was able to retire from that career. And I am uh, in a position like Albert Hubbard is now. Uh, I'm in a position now, like Albert Hubbard was in then, I should say, to uh, to explore other avenues, and I've and I've since done that in the in the in the, in the past eight years since I retired. <laughs> I'm in front walking walking by a couple of guys walking up a pole, and uh, <laughs> that's the way to be when you're working is to be able to have a good laugh. I can appreciate that. So, uh, Albert Hubbard uh, decided he wanted to be a writer, and uh, he wrote his first story under a, uh, a pen name, 
which was not well received. And, uh, but with his money, he thought, well, uh, he, he'd never went to a formal school. So he decided that he would go to, uh, he was going to go to Harvard, like a lot of the, uh, the writers, American writers before him did. He was a reader of uh, Emerson, like I, I think I mentioned Emerson's my favorite, but uh, he was a, a, a reader of the uh, literary greats of the era. And, uh, and like many uh, young American writers, they went to Harvard. And so he, uh, he went there to um, just to kind of survey the classes. He picked up lock, stock, and barrel and, and moved there himself. His family stayed here in East Aurora. And he, uh, he lasted a semester, <laughs> kind of like I did when I first went to college, lasted a semester, uh, almost a semester. And um, he decided that, well, maybe he needs to get his experience through life instead. And so he, he uh, took a trip to Europe to visit the homes of uh, important uh, authors in history and to uh, explore uh, places that they lived and where they work and what inspired them. And later on, that became the inspiration for uh, his first successful series of books that he was the author of called Little Journeys. And uh, when he was here in East Aurora, he teamed up with a, a small print shop owner uh, to have some of his materials printed. And that print shop uh, was called the Roycroft Books. And eventually Albert Hubbard, uh, with, the, with the print shop owner, started a, 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 a magazine uh, called The Philistine. He ended up buying the uh, Roycroft Press, which is what it was named. He bought the trademark and the name Roycroft, which he kind of uh, mythicized by c uh, calling it a, a hybrid of royal and craft. They produced items fit for a king. And on his journeys in Europe, he, was, he became enamored with what were called um, art books, which were um, books that were made by artisans, especially from uh, uh, the Kelmscott Press. Uh, which was a representative of the arts and crafts movement at the time of things made by uh, through head, heart, and hand and not uh, products of the industrial age. And uh, Albert Hubbard identified with uh, uh, the Kelmscott Press and William Morris and, and so forth. And he wanted to produce that same type of artisan-made quality book here in the United States. So that's why he bought the Roycroft Press, but knowing his acumen for, um, for marketing and salesmanship, he knew that uh, one of the major problems of the arts and crafts movement in England was it cost so much, uh, it was so labor intensive to produce things with, uh, without machines, with just head, heart, and hand, that it was not commercially viable. And, and so, but he understood that he could make something of good quality but of different trim lines. So like now you go to buy a car and there's different trim lines. You know, you have your basic model and then your, 
your sport model, your luxury sedan, and so forth. Well, he would produce books of different trim lines. So one might be a soft cover pamphlet on, uh, on just uh, stock paper. And on the other end of the spectrum, you had these leather-bound, hand-tooled, uh, illuminated editions, meaning that they were colorized um, and just absolutely beautiful. That would that your average person could. There's no way they could afford them. It would take a couple of years' salary to to buy some of these books. Let me get another sip. So that was his business model, and his. Um, and his magazine, The Philistine, became very popular with uh, tens and tens of thousands of subscribers. And his books became very popular. Hi, how are you? Good, after you, go ahead. And so, you know, you don't print a magazine without uh, advertising space, so he could advertise his own products in his own magazines. And the Roycroft became incredibly successful. And I think we'll continue this story in the next episode. But uh, I certainly identify with the story of Albert Hubbard in a lot of different ways. And uh, it was one of the things, the history of Albert Hubbard and the, the village that we live in, the history of the Roycroft, um, his desire to, um, after following one career to what he saw was a, its logical point of termination for him. Uh, I too identify with that. And like him, I'm in a position to be able to control uh, what I let into my life and and what I keep out of my life. So. Uh, my family and I have what we call our um, our five pillars that, that are those are lenses that we evaluate things in our lives and ours are we have five they all start with an F uh, faith, family, finances, fitness and freedom and the thing about freedom is freedom is to us is freedom from and freedom to so and I think they're equally important. And, and especially in a lot of cases, freedom from doing things that you don't want to do is even more freeing than the freedom to do things that you want. Uh, because you can almost always find a way, if you're that determined, to bring things into your life, to, to reach your goals and so forth. But the, uh, if you are in a position where you're... Uh, I don't want to use it to sound too dramatic, but when you're but when you're imprisoned by your circumstances, that you are prohibited from doing something because you're uh, uh, bound by something else. Uh, there, there's no difference between that and and, and a physical prison. Um, so freedom from is just as, if not more important, in, in a lot of cases, than the freedom to do something else. So I try to be very deliberate. Let me be loud here for a second. I try to be very deliberate about what I 
letting into my life to ensure that I still have the freedom from things to do things that I want to do. So, because everything has a cost. There's a, there's a, a competing forces and everything in life. So, um, I know in, in Emerson's uh, essay, Compensation, uh, that's that's the major uh, point that he's driving home, that everything in life has opposing forces that keep it in balance. Uh, you know, you have um, uh, the systole and diastole of the heart. You have centrifugal and centripetal force. You have uh, uh, magnetism that where one side of the magnet will repel and the other will attract and north and south and so forth. So everything has its equal and opposite uh, force in life to kind of keep things in perspective, yin and yang, or I guess they call it. And uh, and I agree with that. So freedom from and freedom to, for me, are uh, and my family are very, very important. And uh, I have to remember that when, that not everybody has that. When I'm out on my walks, that uh, in order to have the the margin in my life to be able to enjoy the, the, these walks and to contemplate these things in my life, uh, I have to remember that when I sign up for something, uh, the cost of doing that, there's a cost, it costs me something else. So everything, everything has a cost. Everything in life has a cost. And uh, that's so important to remember. And with our daughter, we don't, I see some parents who are my age or younger, and they are, they run around uh, with their kids constantly. They come home from work doing something they hate doing, uh, usually because they need to buy the money that, they need the money to buy things that they don't want to impress people that they don't like. <laughs> and, uh, but they come home and they run through the drive through and pick up something from McDonald's because they don't have time to cook a healthy meal. They're not taking care of themselves physically. They pick up their their kid to run them somewhere, um, you know, to be quote unquote involved, and and they're just they spend their whole week running around, and they're mortgaging their five days of the week just to live on two days of the weekend. And I I just don't I'm just not going to do that in my life. And um, if I take on something. Uh, it is it is very deliberate. I have no problem. I love to work. I love to do different things, but it better be meaningful, and there better it better allow me to have some balance. Um, which even balance, I'm not thrilled with that term either. Um, you know, uh, balance looks easy, and like you know, you think about oh the balance of scales and so forth. But there's just like in Emerson's compensation, there's a give and a take for that. And when you see somebody on a on a high wire walking across, you know that tightrope carrying the the stick for balance, every move they make is a counterbalance issue, and it's not it's not an effortless thing. That balance is very very difficult. So. Sometimes I, I think I don't like the word balance because it sounds so easy and need to have balance in life. Uh, and other times I look at that word and it's like that's exactly what it is. You do have to work at it. 
It's like they say you have to work at a marriage. Without a doubt, you have to work at it. Uh, things in life don't just come easy. And they shouldn't. Where would your appreciation be if they, if they, they came easy? That's a, um, a pillar of Stoicism for sure, which I enjoy uh, reading you know, the three big uh, names in Stoicism, um, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. And, uh, and that's something that they, that is preached throughout is to, every once in a while, you really need to, um, you definitely need to appreciate what you have. And so sometimes it's good to exercise your life without those things. And uh, that's why I like camping. I like, you know, being out in the woods. I like chopping my own wood for my fireplace. And uh, some of the old, some of the old sayings like chopping wood. I got to chop wood this afternoon, which I'm gonna want you to hold me accountable on that. I got to chop wood this afternoon. The old saying, the old adage, that when you chop your own wood, it warms you twice, is absolutely true. And um, I did want to mention on days when it's. Uh, just just too nasty, <laughs> too nasty to, to do these thoughts on walks. Um, it doesn't mean I don't spend any time in contemplation. Uh, I usually do that by my fireplace on my sleeping porch that I made. And uh, so there may be some times when I record these as more of a fireside chat than a uh, thoughts on walks, and I'll include that audio if I do. But I... Uh, I hope you enjoy some of this and at least see what's on my mind. It's healthy for me to talk it out. I, I appreciate walking with a, a virtual friend and being able to express myself. And again, if, if you get something out of this, terrific. And if not, I completely understand that. Um, I don't want you to download this or subscribe or do anything you don't that, that takes up the margin in your life. But if you find it valuable, I would love to know that. So again, if you um, leave a honest rating and review on iTunes, that would be that would help. Because when you think about this, it's all it's. Um, I don't know if anybody. I know of one person who's listened to this. Because I'm not promoting it. It's it's just out there for people to find or be shared through word of mouth or through you know a recommendation from a friend. Um, and I know that if there's something that I listen to or a product that I use or what have you, um, I feel good about recommending that to a friend. It kind of makes me a little bit uh, feel like a bit of a hero to them for the day, and I share it with them. Um, but just like I wouldn't recommend a product that isn't uh, useful to me, to somebody, uh, I wouldn't want you to do that either if this isn't useful for you. And look, I know it's raw. I know the audio quality isn't the best. But uh, this is a... And I'm not going to spend a lot of time refining it because it's really just uh, me talking with you on a walk. And I'd love to hear back from you. So we kind of wrapped up with uh, Albert Hubbard starting uh, off with the Roycroft Press and initially printing some of his own books uh, called Little Journeys. There was a couple before that. Actually, the first book that they that was printed by the Roycroft 
impressed with Song of Songs from Solomon. But uh, Albert Hubbard's own work was through the Little Journeys and his work in the Philistine. So that brings us up to about, if I have my dates right, about 1895-ish. And so on another walk, we'll pick up from there. So I hope you have a terrific day. Make the most of your day. And uh, try a little, little bit of simplicity in your life. Share this with a friend. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode of Thoughts on Walks. Have a great day.